What better way to listen to the Stay Woke podcast than listen to it wearing a Stay Woke or Wokest t-shirt? From royaltyshop.bigcartel.com. My personal favorite is the red and white one. So head over to royaltyshop.bigcartel.com to get one today. Again, that's royaltyshop.bigcartel.com. You're now tuned into the hottest podcast in the world, the Stay Woke Podcast. Right here on the SonicBreakdown.com. Man, it's time to wake up. Time to wake up. Get this cake up. Get this cake up. Only thing I care about is switching. Welcome back to another Stay Woke Podcast. This is D-Ray Brinson. And you know the Stay Woke Podcast is presented by the SonicBreakdown.com. If you haven't gone over and checked out our, our, our latest article or review, head over there now to the SonicBreakdown.com and check out one of our articles from one of our great writers, such as Jason Sorrell, Jennifer Oliveiro, or Delmar Nepew. But let's get right into what today's podcast is going to be about. And today's going to be another Let's Talk About a segment. And as you know, with all of our Let's Talk About a segments, we interview somebody that is interesting and creative. And today's creative and interesting person is going to be Alonje Hawes. Uh, Alonje Hawes is the writer, creator, producer, and actor, a man of many skills and talents, of Blue Collar Hustle. And Blue Collar Hustle is a series that you can watch on YouTube. Um, we're going to get into that a little bit more as we uh, go through this podcast. But before we get into that, let's get to know Alonje a little bit better. For those who do know Alonje, uh, he's from his or his father's from Chicago and his mother is from Grand Rapids, Michigan. He also has an older brother who writes and a younger brother who it raps as well. So if for those who have seen Blue Collar Hustle, you would know that all of that seems like all of you, all of the brothers uh, have a, a creative tendency. And uh, as we were talking off air, how is that creative tendency or creativeness fostered in your family? Yeah, it was definitely fostered by having, you know, two parents in the household who were creative in and of themselves. My father was a, a great writer and orator himself. And, you know, the entertainment piece comes really from my mother, who was a singer and actress. My grandmother um, was also a, a gospel singer, pastor and actress. And my aunt is actually an actress here in Atlanta. Uh, she's actually on a show called Greenleaf uh, on the OWN Network right now. Mm. So she's been acting for upwards of 30 years, but in a bunch of movies, a bunch of TV shows. So just coming up with all that really helped foster me and my siblings' creative you know, ambition. Of course, you know, I have an older brother who writes. He lives in California. My younger brother raps here in Atlanta. Um, my sister, Shawnee, who actually co-stars with me in the show and is also a producer in the show, sings and acts as well. So, you know, all of that started in the in the initial household. And I, I just want to quick take a quick side note and say um, I want to first thank Shani for uh, allowing this uh, interview to happen. She's the one that connected me to you, and uh, I, I'm, I'm very happy that she did because otherwise uh, I might have missed out on a great series. So uh, shout out to Shani. Yeah, shout out to Shani. Shout out to Shani. Also, she's she, she's doing her job as a producer. So she's <laughs> definitely yeah, she's definitely hooking me up with some with some great interviews and things of that nature. So definitely shout out to Shani. More than an actress, she's just one of the unsung heroes behind the scenes of the show as well. Having that all that creative energy in a house, what was it like growing up? You know, with with all that creative energy from from your parents, from uh, your grandparents, and then that gets you know translated down and, and passed down to you. Uh, there was never a dull moment. I'll say that. <laughs> um, <laughs> growing up, uh, I was actually the oldest growing up, as I didn't grow up with my older brother. So okay. it was really, I was the oldest, and then Shawnee came right after me, and I have a, a sister and a younger brother. So. You know, growing up with all, and we were all right after one another. So, you know, we grew up a similar age. So just having them in the household with me and us doing things like, you know, we would, we would like write our own plays and put on plays and shows for our parents. 
there was always something that one of us did that one of us excelled at. So for me, it was writing. My sister, she was a great drawer. So I would write the stories and then she would illustrate it for me. And then maybe Shawnee would, would sing something. And then my little <laughs> brother would come. We'd put him and have a show with him. And he'd act with us and things like that. So it was never a dull moment in the Hall's household uh, growing up. It was a lot of fun. A lot of, a, a lot of great memories, I'll say. And were you born in Atlanta or... Um, I was actually born in Grand Rapids, Michigan, okay. um, and I was raised in Lansing, Michigan, until I was about 14. Okay. So when I was 14 years old is when we moved out to Atlanta. Okay. Really, Stone Mountain, Stone Mountain, Georgia. Okay. The the home of Childish Gambino, Donald Glover. Home, yes, that's right. Yep, the home of Childish Gambino. That's correct. Yep, mm-hmm. Donald Glover. Shout out to Donald Glover. Yeah. That creative, creative man. Woo. Um, yeah, genius. Yeah. Coming up in that creative environment, do you did you ever feel that was it always felt that your creative energy was accepted? Because sometimes uh, having all that creative energy, you can feel, I guess, not I, w- I won't say ashamed, but more of um, you know, put put away because everybody's trying to showcase their talent. So you know, there might not have been enough room for you or somebody, one of your siblings. Was that something that you ever faced at, with all that creative energy in the house? No, not really. Uh, actually, it was nurtured uh, mm. from a very young age, particularly from my mother. It was nurtured in all of us. And it, was, it wasn't it was like there wasn't enough room. It mm. was like, again, we all excelled at something different at different times. So it was basically like when it was my turn to shine, it was my turn. When it was Shawnee's turn, it was her turn. When it was my sister and my brother's turn, it was their turn. You know, we all were very supportive of one another. And we were all very inclusive with one another. If anything, it, it was pushed to the point where I actually took a step back from my creative inhibitions for a little while just so I could live life a little bit. I actually mm. made the I made the decision at a young age. I decided I was doing a lot of things. By the time I was like 11, I was in various talent shows. I was actually like lip syncing to Michael Jackson and doing like a <laughs> Michael Jackson routine. And I won a lot of talent shows in Lansing, Michigan. And my mother put, put me and my sister in an acting class and we were in that and I was in a couple of local commercials and things. So it was like a thing where it was kind of like, oh, you're, you're, you're primed to do this. And then I kind of took a step back, made the competition when I was like 13. Like, no, nah, I kind of want to live life, go to school, play basketball, you know, do things that other kids do and, and, and just find out who I really am before I decided that I, that I was going to set on this path. Understandable. And when did you realize that you were a creator? Uh, I realized I was a creator around that age, around 11, 12 years old, okay. when everything that I was interested in had something to do with creativity or me creating something or, or me acting out or performing. I was I was really really talented. I was really good at it, but I also wanted to put the work in. Mm. You know, if I was going to be a Michael Jackson impersonator, I was going to be the greatest Michael Jackson impersonator <laughs> of all time. You know, or if I was going to be if I was going to write something, I was it was going to be the best that it actually could be. I'd actually go back and do research. I would look at my father's dictionaries and thesauruses to make sure that what I was writing, I wasn't using the same words mm-hmm. all the time. I didn't want to be repeti- uh, repetitious, even as a young kid. Or if I was writing a poem or something like that, I always I always wanted to set myself to a higher standard or a higher goal. I actually remember when I was a kid, what I would do is if I liked a girl, what I would do is I would go back and listen to my dad's old records that nobody <laughs> else would ever know, like Dang. listen to. So I would, so what I would do is I would take maybe like the first paragraph would be like lyrics from these old songs. And then the rest of it would be all me. So just in case if I was bad, you had that first paragraph <laughs> that you could be like, okay, this is good. You know, so that's what I would do. So, you know, ever since then, I had that drive in me to be to to do greatness, to do something great. That's awesome. Uh, that uh, using using um, legends uh, words to help spark your creativity. I, I that that's that's a smart way to begin. Like you said, at least you know that they'll enjoy at least part of it. <laughs> right, and then what happened was is if if I would write the poem and give it to a girl, 
she's connected to you. She's like, yo, this is good. I really love the second part. <laughs> and the second part was all me. So yeah. I like, okay, I got this. Okay, yeah. I'm good. Okay. Yeah, so it was a confidence booster at the same time. It's like, okay. Exactly. Right, exactly. That's all. And one of the things that I noticed doing all these Let's Talk About It segments with people that are, are uh, people that are very creative is a sense of confidence without being overly confident. And how did you balance that, especially young? Because I feel like it's harder for young kids, especially young children that are talented and understand their talent to make that balance. Did you have any issues with that? Well, no, because my father always instilled in me a sense of discipline. And my father always would tell me, and he said, you know, this is something he had to learn growing up in Chicago. As bad as you are, there's always somebody up in the back. <laughs> That's right. You know, and, and so that was always something that kept me. And then, you know, growing up uh, older, as I listened to hip hop, you know, my favorite, my favorite artist is Nas. And I remember Nas had an interview where he said, self-praise is no praise. Yeah. So just keeping those, just keeping those things within me, you know, just like, you know, again, like, you know, we just talked about Donald Glover, you know, as good as you think you are, there's always somebody out there that can show you a thing or two. So I always try to keep that in me, you know, not try to be, be confident, but not cocky. And do you think a part of your father's dealings with working with troubled youth, do you think that also helped in adding perspective? Oh, without a shadow of a doubt. So my father, he actually worked um, with troubled youth. Uh, it was a place called Camp Highfield. Mm-hmm. So what he did was he worked as a as a correctional officer in the prison system. Okay. And I remember being a little kid, he would actually he would actually go up and he would work at the prison system for like three or four days. And then he'd come back. He'd come back really late and be with us for three or four days. And he was always going back and forth. And, you know, as the family grew bigger, he knew he needed to be home. So he actually took a, a position working with troubled youth. It was kind of like a... It was like a uh, a juvenile detention center, but it was almost like a halfway house for troubled youth who were like coming in and out of the system. Okay. And he would he would take me up there and introduce me to these to these older guys, and you know they would tell me about their lives and what their lives and tell me what was going on and and it, it made an impression upon me how fortunate I was. Number one, to have a father because even back then there were times where I grew up I was very conscious of the fact that my father was oftentimes the only father in our neighborhood, and that's white or black. Yeah. You know, so and just listening to that and seeing that, I was always confident of the fact how how blessed I was. So that was that definitely added perspective from a young age. What about your mother's creative aspect? How do you think? How do you think her being a jazz singer and being so creative? How do you think that fostered and and guided you on your creative journey? It did in a couple ways. Um, on the positive aspect, the fact that she was always there for us when I was pushing us to be creative was a positive thing. She was always there. She would give us singing lessons. Um, she would give us lessons as far as diction, how to speak. Um, she was always the first to critique the writings, edit the writings that I would do, things of that nature. So she was always the one, and she and she made sure to put us to the forefront. So she would be like the choir director for the school. She made sure to put us to the forefront, and it wasn't like a it wasn't a nepotism thing because she knew we had the talent, mm-hmm. but she always wanted to make sure we had the opportunity. So she gave us the opportunity to be up front first, and that made us leaders first. That made us examples first. So if any children were jealous or hating. They couldn't hate on the work that we put in because my mm. mother was making sure that we did that at home. <laughs> so on the, yeah, so on the positive aspect, that was one thing. On the not so positive aspect, I got to see, I got to see parts of the business that were not so positive. There were times when my mother would enter into agreements with people who she thought were friends, and she'd be working on music, and she was the writer, the producer. She put everything together, and other people were were trying to stiff her and take you know credit for what she did. So I got to see that up close as well. So that kind of turned me off a little bit. I tell you, when I made a decision to step back, I was like, I don't, I don't really want to do it. I'm 12 years old. But seeing her, seeing her battle that and, and still be triumphant, the fact that she never quit, 
you know, it all of it, it, I mean, it was a positive experience. Yeah, yeah that's what I was going to say. I was like, at, at the time, it might have felt a negative, but I think moving forward, you know, now that you're you're in the industry, it gives you it gives you a sense of because you also often hear of especially young actresses talk about it. Even Gabrielle Union talked about it. I forgot what movie she did with Heath Ledger when, you know, her first movie with it was a whole bunch of kids her are actors her age at the time. And she thought it was all this fun and happy. And she thought that's how the industry was. And right. so her next movie and she realizes, you know, everybody's not getting along. Everybody's not having fun. We're not all not hanging out after after the after the scene is done. You know, that's not the kind of reality that it is. That it is a business. The fact that you got that business right. understanding of it so early, you know, to me would be a benefit that you don't have that shock and all later. It's like, oh, I know this, and I can be prepared for it, and and counteract it before it does occur. Is that something that, that you feel right. now, in in, in a retrospect? Oh. Oh, absolutely. And what I try to do to circumvent that is I try to make sure that any production that I'm involved in where, where, it's, where it's my production, mm-hmm. um, I try to make sure it's an atmosphere that is ultimately positive and, you know, collaboration is sought and it's sought out and it's actually feedback is actually valued. Mm-hmm. Um, also, the fact that, the, that I started this collaboration with people that I knew personally and had worked with and knew their work ethic actually helps so that they understand, I mean, they understand it's business. But at the same time, we can mix business. We can mix business with our friendship and make something that's successful. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not going to be that all the time. But at least if we start with that as a foundation, we know going forward what we can do and what we're capable of. As well as in that in that situation, as you said, you already knew their work ethic and their workload, so you already have an expectation. Of, Absolutely. Of you know. I think a lot of uh, the conflict that people have, especially with business, is what they expected, their expectations versus reality, what what they're getting. And in that situation, you already knew what what was to be expected because you knew them, and then you got that. <laughs> so, uh, right, absolutely. That, make, absolutely. that makes it and easier thought, in that regard. Mm-hmm. Nope. Exactly. Um, association breeds similarity. Yeah. So, you know, it's the people who that you surround yourself with. And this is something that Will Smith actually said years ago. He said, you are who you associate with. So if you look around at your five closest friends and you don't like what you see, you know what you got to do. So I'm in a position where I look around at my five closest friends and I like who they are, <laughs> which means I like the reflection upon me. Gotcha. Yeah, that, and, and that's very true. And as you made that transition, because you said there was that period of time where you were talking about that, you know, you, you had to put the creativeness to the side and you just wanted to live a little bit. What got you back into the creativeness, and and when was that? Well, it never left me. That was the thing. The thing is, it was always it mm-hmm. was always there, and it was just something that I utilized as a tool. I didn't really try to utilize it to to really do anything with it. So, if 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 it was something like, for instance, we were in school and and you had to write something, you know, I made sure I put a lot of thought and effort into the writing. Mm-hmm. You know, I took a creative writing class in high school, and and you know, I was always getting high marks for it and things of that nature. So it was always there. It was always kind of like, you know, I believe in a, I believe in a, a mixture of destiny and free will. So destiny kept telling me, putting me in certain situations like, Hey, this is for you. You know, you only get so long, right. That's just right. You only get so long to do this. So really what happened was, is I was in the army and while I was in the army, just to kind of blow off steam, uh, I was writing a lot of reviews of hip hop albums, like rap albums and things of that nature. So I was writing a lot of reviews and I was posting them online and the message boards that I was posting them on were really liking it. They were like, hey, we really like your point of view. People were reaching out to me to write more so that I could put it on their website. Mm. And I was saying, okay, that's great. You know, I'll just do this. It was a hobby. It was a nice little hobby. 
And it got to the point where, where people were really reaching out to the court, like, hey, well, we'll pay you, you know, to, to review this or to review that. Can you do this by this? Do you have this by this? I said, oh, yeah, sure. And I'd write it, edit it myself, and, and put it up there. And I said to myself, like, I really could be doing something with this, you know. <laughs> and it got, to the, it got to the point where it was like, are you going to be – I had to make a decision. Am I going to be satisfied working for other people for the rest of my life, or am I going to make the attempt to work for myself and mm-hmm. utilize my talent? Be that 2%. So I decided – yeah, so I decided, hey, it's like my father, you know, no one's going to believe in you unless you believe in yourself. So I had to really dig deep and believe in myself to go out there and really do it. I just want to touch on, uh, because uh, the Stay Well podcast, as well as the SonicBreakdown.com, started as a result of music and, and the passion for music. And it seems like you share that same passion. And I got that definitely that inkling from Blue Collar Hustle. When, when did you fall in love with hip-hop? I fell in love with hip-hop. Okay, I first fell in love with hip-hop when I was about, 10 or 11 years old and no it maybe a little bit before that and i would say eight when i first saw the movie house party <laughs> me and my dad sat down and we watched the movie house party and i was blown away and i thought kid and play were the greatest rappers of all time and i wanted to be just like them and i would watch house party uh, one two and three in, in class like incessantly like all day every day and i would make my brothers and sisters watch it with me and, and they're like why are we watching this? And i'm like you guys don't understand this is important you know <laughs> you don't get it you <laughs> so don't see coming it. up Right, you don't get it, you know, and then coming up, so it was like kid and play, and then of course you had Will Smith and Fresh Prince, and coming from the household that I came from, you know, they were the only two rappers we could we could listen to in the house because, you know, they were clean. Mm-hmm. But then, when I was going to school, you know, my friends were like, kid and play, Will Smith, nah, we don't know that, bro. <laughs> like, you know, they are like, nah, we're going to put you on some of this Luke, we're going to put you on some of this Dre, some of this Nas, some of this J, you know, some of this DMX. So my friends at school, you know, hit me to game, and so it was kind of like a secret, you know, it was kind of like a secret identity at home, it was like Will Smith getting jiggy with it, but at school, it was like, it was written, it was like, it's dark and hell is hot, you know, so I got different perspectives, you know, so that's when I really fell in love with hip-hop, because, and music in general, because it was, it was expression, you know, it was, it was a fresh, it was poetic, you know, and from a writing aspect, it was it, a lot of it's just genius. Yeah. You know, so that's really when I fell in love with music and hip hop. And, you know, it goes way back when my father playing his old 45, mm-hmm. 32. You know, he had the old school record player. He had Frankie Lyman and the teenagers. You know, we were listening to Frankie Lyman before the, the movie even came out. I knew who Frankie Lyman was. Yeah. Of course, we were listening. My, my, my father had the old, uh, the first Jackson 5 singles when they were on uh, Steel Town Records. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I, before I knew- they were signed to Motown. Hey, you should yeah. hold on to hold on to those. <laughs> I got them. Yeah, I still got them. I got some of those records. Yeah. So all of those, all that's a Stevie Wonder, all of that was just, and then that mixed with my mother's appreciation for jazz. You know, Miles Davis and and uh, Nina Simone and Billie Holiday. So you know, just coming up in that household, I got the, I got the full spectrum of music. I got the full spectrum of really a black music. Yeah. Coming up in my household. So yeah, and, it was great. And I think. I think those that appreciate jazz have a different perspective on their appreciation for hip hop. Just be just the sounds that it, it that it, that boom bap rap and and golden era rap has. I think um, I, th- I think it just adds to a different a different level of appreciation. Not that if you don't like jazz that you can't appreciate hip hop, but I just think it, it adds to the quality that you might not get if you don't appreciate jazz as much because it's Absolutely. so I mean... entangled and 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 tied to hip hop. Absolutely. I mean, that's where, I mean, you know, all black music is really just an evolution of something that came before it. So, you know, you had jazz and then you had funk, you know, and then hip hop came on the back of funk and jazz. Mm -hmm. You know, so the first break beats were were funk beats, were James Brown beats, you know. 
And, you know, James Brown had that old Southern, you know, hey, watch ya. You know what I'm saying? So what it really comes down to, again, is like, you know, you can appreciate both because it all comes, it all comes from the same source. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So now taking all of this creative energy, all, all that you've fostered through your life, as well as this musical knowledge that you have, plus the, your, your details and level of writing that you've been exploring and kind of honing in, even without you noticing that you're honing it in. Basically, you've been doing that your life. As you said, you've been writing your whole life. Uh, then you did the reviews. That All that time, it, it, in my eyes, I see it as you honing your craft for Blue Collar Hustle and then Blue Collar Hustles. And then, you know, it just expands and it's a snowball effect. Take us to the point of the conception of Blue Collar Hustle. Yeah, absolutely. And, what you, and really what you just said is, is, is really true in so many ways. So what happened was is I was working as a manager at Best Buy. Best Buy was actually my first job when I was 19 years old. So I was 19, I started working at Best Buy, yeah. And I worked there for a couple of years, and it was really great. It was really good. I loved it. And then the recession hit in 2009. And when the recession hit, I, 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 could, I could see the writing on the wall. So that's when I actually joined the, the Army. And then when I came back out, you know, I actually went right back to working at Best Buy. So I was a manager at Best Buy, and I had just got promoted to assistant manager. Um, and there's a, you know, there's, there's a, a small city here in Georgia called Noonan, Georgia. So I was promoted mm-hmm. down there. And I met Quentin Williams, who stars in the series with me as Quan Banneker. Um, I met Roberto, uh, Roberto Cruz, uh, who stars in the series as uh, Jose Torres. Okay. And I already knew I already knew Howard um, Howard Woodburn, um, who stars in the series um, as Anthony Lee. He actually worked <laughs> with me at the previous Best Buy, and I and I took him. I was like, "Look, you're coming with me. You know, <laughs> when I get promoted, you're coming with me. I don't care how I got to pay you. You're coming with me." Similar so to what we uh, all met. Similar to what Johnny did to uh, Anthony. Exactly right. Exactly, that's correct. Yeah. Gotcha, gotcha. Imitate, light imitates art. Right. Gotcha. So what happened was is you know when I met Quentin, what I liked about him off the off the first block was he was a really charming guy. He was great with customers, and he was very, very, very dependable. If mm-hmm. I needed him to come in, if he wasn't on the schedule, I said, "Hey man, I need you in like an hour. Can you get here?" He like, "I got you." You know, he was always coming in, very dependable, great with customers, just all around great spirit. He's the type of guy that you get around. And even if you're having a bad day, you automatically feel good about yourself. That's good. It's always good so to have somebody like was, that around in your circle. Exactly. So I respected him as an employee, you know. But what happened was he was always telling me, you know, he was like, hey, I rap too. And what you got to understand about here in Atlanta is everybody's a rapper in Atlanta. Yeah. Everybody has a mixtape or everybody has a song they're working on or everybody has some type of rap dreams. <laughs> so you get kind of you get, you get kind of turned off to the whole, hey, listen to my mixtape type, you know, attitude. Because you get it all day, every day. Yeah. So, you know, he was like, hey, I got some songs. I got this flash drive. He was he was reading some of my reviews as well. And he was like, hey, I really respect your opinion on hip-hop. Can you just give it a listen? I think you'll really like it. And I said, you know, just keep his spirits up. I was like, yeah, man, sure, I got you, man. Everybody got to have a dream. <laughs> and, um, you know, in the back of my head, I'm like, I'm never going to listen to this. But one night I went home and, you know, I was home by myself. And I just on a whim, I was like, you know, let me, give, let me just give it a try. You know? And so I put it in my computer and started listening and I was on one song. And then before I knew it, I was on another song. And before I knew it, I was on another song. I said, this is incredible. So this, this, this is really good. You know, his rhymes are fresh. He had good beats. His stuff was mastered properly. It was really good. So I got kind of inspired by that. And I went to my said, Hey, you're, you're really good. And then me, him and um, uh, Roberto, we call him Sosa. We got together and, you know, we asked him like, who's managing you? Uh, what are you doing with the music? How you put it out? He was like, I'm just doing it all by myself. And so we said, hey, look, we're going to help you. We're going to help you do this. And so the original plan was, the original plan was for us to help him get shows, put the 
album out for me to write reviews for him and write his press releases and really focus on, you know, getting his music to as many years as possible. And what happened was, is a lot of stuff that we were going through in life as we started hanging out more and, and going to shows and trying to put them on. I said, I said, you know, this would be a really good TV show <laughs> because of the simple fact that as a, as a, as a, as a lover of the medium, uh, you know, I love entertainment movies, TV, you know, growing up, there wasn't a lot of things that I saw that I was proud of that I could say black people were in, honestly. Yeah. Especially during that time. You know, I can count on, and even to this day, I can count on maybe five fingers the amount of shows that I watch with predominantly, you know, black actors or people of color that I feel like is representative of us truly. Yeah. It's, so we just I, we're now getting a, a somewhat of a resurgence. Yeah, a resurgence of that. We had a little bit of yeah. it, you know, with the Cosby, Different World. Uh, that that right, that time exactly. period, and uh, then it Prince. yeah, Fresh Prince, and then it just it just went like it died. went like black, it like died, and then now we're starting to get that back with um, Atlanta, blackish, blackish insecure, grownish, insecure. you mm-hmm. know, uh, things of that nature. So I definitely agree, and I definitely see, I and I, I definitely felt the same way as you as you did about that lack of of space in in media for something that represents and that that we can truly relate to. Almost in all aspects, you know? This Stay Woke podcast episode is sponsored by Triple Apex. At Triple Apex, they know the importance of a healthy, active, and safe sex life for women. And living in an environment where an understanding, knowledge, and respect of women, sexuality is essential for this. Visit TripleApexForWomen.com to check out their products. Again, that is TripleApexForWomen.com. Or just click the link in the description below. Right, exactly. And so I said, I said, there's a there's a dark of just number one is a dark of young black millennials that are being portrayed as working class black millennials. You know, we have stories that are interesting. We have stories that are entertaining. We have stories that can touch the world that I feel like aren't being spoken on because even you know at that time because we're going on this is going on two years almost. So at the time, you only. Atlanta was just coming out. Atlanta hadn't come out yet when I started writing the show, mm-hmm. but you heard about it. You knew it was coming, but it's from one perspective. And then Insecure was just coming out, and it was from you know another perspective. Mm-hmm. But I didn't really see the perspective as far as young millennials in the workplace. Yeah. So yeah. I said, yeah, I said that's, there's an opportunity. Yeah, that's true because both of those shows are in different spaces. Well, Atlanta's closer, but it's, it's like you said, it's still not the workspace. It doesn't have that dynamic that I think that's what Blue Collar Hustle, an, another dynamic that we haven't seen that you that you captured in that. Right. Thank you. And so and so what I wanted to do was I, it just hit me one day. I said, you know what? I said, I know what I'm going to do. I said, this is what I'm going to do. I said, I'm going to create a web series. I said, I'm going to use Quentin's music as the soundtrack to the web series. And I'm going to take his song, his lyrics and use that as the basis for the show. Because what, I, what drew me to him as a rapper was he was speaking on things that I could relate to. Mm. So I said, this is going to help give him a bigger platform. So what I did was one night, and I stayed up like maybe 2 a.m., I wrote the I wrote the series outline, and I said, this is where the characters go from point A to point B, so I wrote the series outline, mm. came up with all the characters. I wrote the first draft of the first script, okay. and the next day I called all of them. I, we were all at work, and I said, hey, look. I said, all you guys come to my house after work. I got something to show y'all, and I know what we're going to do next. Because we were talking at first, the, the plan was to shoot videos. The plan was to shoot music videos for for Quentin. You know, his rap name is Kubrick. The plan was to shoot videos and put them out on YouTube. So it came to the house. And I said, "Look, 
instead of spending money on videos, I said, we're going to make an entire web series and we're going to, this is going to be quote unquote our video. We'll make an entire web series and what'll happen was I'm going to title each, each episode title is going to be based on one of your song titles. And then the concept, I'm going to take your concept and write a whole script and we're going to do it like that. Mm. And from the jump, everybody's like, okay, we're down. They're like, <laughs> we're down. And because they trusted me because like, again, as their manager, as their leader, you know, I hadn't steered them wrong at work. Mm. So they were like, okay, if you say we're going to do this, we're going to do this, but you just have to come through. I said, okay. So I showed them the outline. They saw everything that I was going for it. And I showed them the first script and they saw that and they said, okay, we're down. So really what it did was it came down to, to me just really teaching myself how to build a production business, really, mm -hmm. honestly. Yeah. So after I wrote that, I was like, now how are you going to bring it to screen? So what happened was is I went on Craigslist and I, and I looked up, I said, black directors in Atlanta, because <laughs> um, I wanted the person who I, who I partnered with to be a, a person of color so they could understand where I was coming from. Mm -hmm. And I found Jeffrey Henderson, who, uh, who has been running his own film production company, uh, I believe, for like 10 or 11 years. He's done a lot of independent movies, his own productions and things of that nature. He had never done a web series before. I reached out to him. I said, look, I have this concept. I'll send you the script. I just need to know as far as how much money and how many days of shooting we're talking about because we still, we're, we're all working. You know, <laughs> so it's not like we can just drop everything. Like, hey, yeah, we're going to go be stars now and shoot the show. Yeah. No, we had to come like with a whole schedule and everything. So he said, okay. So he got back to me about three, four days later. He said, listen, he said, we can do it in this amount of days. And... I really like the concept, so I'm gonna we're gonna do it for this amount of money. Mm. Can you do that? And he was like, I really enjoy the concept. He said, so I'm gonna waive certain fees that he would charge other people. He waived those just because he believed in the in the project. And really, for a first time writer and for a first time actors, that's a big deal for him to place that amount of faith. You know, he didn't know me from Adam. Yeah. You know, we just spoke on the phone a couple times before we even met in person, and we and we spoke over email. So for him to do that. Just let me know again, this is destiny. So what I did was I took $2,000 from my own personal savings, and I said, we're going to do this. And we did it. That's how that's how it really started. Once we locked it in with Jeffrey, I knew we were going to do it, and that's when we started rehearsing. And I do want to say one thing, too, um, of what you said is, I would say that him accepting and, and being so... Uh, forward and and so committed to the project without even meeting you just through email it, it speaks to your level of writing to me because he felt that strong based off the words of someone he never met never knew can actually even deliver on it but that again like i said it to me that shows the strength of the words it'd be thank the, you it's it, it kind of reminds me of because we're doing this uh this thing on rapture how nas didn't really know much about dave east dave east right yeah. yes i saw that episode yeah, exactly so but what he heard of Davies, the the lines that he heard, he was like, he can tell just off that alone. He's like, he's he's attentive to his craft, and that I respect. Right. So I think it's it's kind of a similar scenario with uh Jeff Jeffrey. Uh, that's uh, that's the way that I'm I'm reading it based off of the the situation. Thank you. Yeah, very much so. And 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 the feeling was mutual. Just seeing his work and seeing the amount of attention and detail that he put into his craft. You know, the, the feeling is mutual or I had I wouldn't have reached out to him mm -hmm. in the first place. You know, I do I do a lot of research before I get in, you know, figuratively speaking, before I get into bed with somebody. Yeah, same here. And, you know, I, yeah, I, I watched a lot of his stuff and a lot of his shorts and saw his work ethic and read a lot of reviews about him. And, you know, really at that time, it was really just a match made in heaven, you know, just being able to link up with him and work with him and him being so passionate about the series as he was. Because really what it was, it was a big confidence booster to me and not just to me, but to us as a cast and crew. Was anybody of of the cast professionally trained actors beforehand? 
nobody except for my sister Shawnee, who had continued to take acting classes after we were kids. So we had done a little okay. bit of acting classes, but again, we're talking about we're talking about twelve, thirteen here. Yeah, yeah. We're not talking yeah. about you know overall. <laughs> but she continued. Yeah, she continued to take acting classes, and she actually continued to be in commercials, and she was in uh, stage production. She was doing a lot of stage work mm. um, locally here in Atlanta. So she's uh, she had been classically trained, and then the uh, actress who plays. Um, my wife on the show, mm-hmm. Tijuana Agnew, is a professional actress as well. So they were the only two that were professionals. All the all the males were brand new. Okay, and they had never done it before. How do you think Jeff Jeffrey's trust in you guys added to that factor of being able to come through and and being more relaxed and confident in in your skills as actors? Well, first and foremost, it allowed us to grow as actors because what happened was is I tried to I knew that we were all first time actors. I knew that this was going to be a very, very big undertaking. So the first thing I tried to do was be realistic, which is what I mean by that is I, I, I based a lot of the characterization mm-hmm. on the actual personalities of the people that I knew and a lot of the situations on situations we had been through, it wasn't so foreign. So mm-hmm. I would say like each character is maybe, I would say 60% is based on us. You know, there's some fictionalization, there's some exaggeration there, but a good 60% is based on situations that we've been through and who we are as people. So that way you feel comfortable within yourself. So you can say, okay, this is not so foreign to me. And then what happened was, is that was about the first two episodes. And then episode three through six, as I began to see that we were getting better and better, Mm -hmm. that's when I could allow them to stretch and grow as actors. So that was on me at the beginning to make sure that everybody could be as comfortable as they possibly could doing something that they had never done before. And then with Jeffrey, what Jeffrey did was he allowed us to be us. So he allowed me to take the charge that I needed to that I needed to take in order for the production to come together the way it was supposed to. And what he did was he 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 made suggestions along the way that that allowed us to really just grow. So he would say things like, uh, hey Alange, maybe you should say it like this. Or, you know, hey Quentin, maybe you should say it like that. And maybe we should frame it like this. Mm. Or maybe we should frame it like that. You know, he was always making suggestions. And then if I said, well, that's not going to be true to the character. So I wrote like this. He was like, okay, I understand. Let's try it both ways. And then we'll see mm. which way works. So I said, okay, cool. So we always try it both ways. And then sometimes he was right and sometimes I was right. But it was just that collaborative spirit that he had that allowed us to work through the growing pains and things of that nature and still support us. That made us more confident and it made the production better. And I think that um, what you said, I think that was a very poignant step by you by taking characteristics of the actors already and infusing that into the script to, as you said, to give them something to hold on to, something to pull that they already have a grasp and understanding of instead of trying to become a whole different person off jump. I I think that's a a great and wonderful way, especially for uh, young actors. What I really love about, you know, the cast is that, you know, they trusted me. Mm. They trusted me through all the ups and downs that we went through. They trusted me and they allowed me to do it. They allowed me to, to, to process the vision and mm. see the vision through. And they were with me 100% of the way. There were little hiccups now and then. You know, some people say, you know, hey, Alonzo, maybe we should do it like this. Or hey, Alonzo, we should do it like that. But the fact of the matter is that I tried to plan it out so meticulously mm-hmm. so that when we got to the point where we could spread our wings, that we did so and the audience could spread the wings with us. I think that part of the the beauty of of this series, the of course the writing, but also the topics that you address. Um, that that's what makes it resonate. That's what made it resonate so well so well with me is you tackle a, a, a myriad of topics that 
in um most media aspects you don't necessarily see them addressing them you're starting to see that again like we mentioned earlier a little bit more like with blackish and things like that but even they have their own parameters that they can't even bypass as a that news article that came out about that blackish couldn't do the protest um, right they couldn't do the protest which which is very which is which i don't want to spoil anything for season two mm -hmm. but let's just say there's nobody that's going to tell me what i can't do and that's that's why like i said a lot of the topics that and a lot of the topics that you address like police brutality materialism uh, systemic and institutional racism, the minimalization of black women, interracial dating, all of those are can be difficult subjects to broach, can often be uh, broached in ways that are one-sided. I felt like you you tried to you tried uh, to bring a nice balance to the topics, even if they weren't agreeing with your or the main character Johnny's um, perspective, but they were still present, and I, and I felt that was. Uh, I guess more, the most evident for me that I noticed it was uh, the interracial dating uh, episode is as you, you were saying all the things of, of why you think, uh, you know, black men should be dating black women that and then you were still bringing up examples or well, the, the script, the story was still bringing up examples of, well, what about this? What about that? Which are conversations that people are having. And I, I think that was important. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So when, when I first conceived the show, I wanted to talk about these things. These are things that I wasn't seeing being talked about, or if they were being talked about, it was kind of being, it, it, it was doing it in a way that I felt was disingenuous. It wasn't, it, it, it's kind of cookie cutter. So like yeah. again, we touched upon the blackish thing, but they weren't allowed to do certain things. Mm -hmm. If I was going to put my money into this production, it was going to be in a Lana J. Hawes series. Then Lana J. Hawes was going to talk about what a Lana J. Hawes wanted to talk about. And these are things that I, that, that I feel like are very important that need to be talked about in the black community. You know, really, the series itself is a love letter to the entire black community. So these are based off conversations that I have had with other black men, black women, um, black children, things of that nature. And I just wanted to, I wanted to do it in a way where black people are not a monolith, so we're all going to have different, you know, opinions. Mm -hmm. We're all raised differently. We have different opinions. But what my father taught me was, if you are black, then some way you can find common ground. So just because I may not date interracially and you do it, you do date interracially, you know, it doesn't mean that you're still not a black person and you still don't go through things that black people go through. You know, you fall in love with who you fall in love with at the end of the day, you know, and we just hope that the people that you fall in love with isn't because we don't, we hope you're not falling in love because you're to the exclusion of black women or to the exclusion of black men. It's just because you fell in love with that person. Absolutely. I'm all for that. And you I know, but and there, I, oh, there's sorry. an element. Mm -hmm. of, I'm, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I was going to say, and I think that to me was, it's, because you can get, uh, especially addressing these topics, you can get to a point where if you don't keep it balanced or you you, you make it one sided, it becomes preachy, and I, preachy, right? You're standing on a soapbox. Exactly, and I didn't get that from any any of the topics that you addressed. I didn't get that it was preachy. I got it, it was like, okay, that's your opinion, that's his opinion, that's his opinion. Now let's let's address why we have these opinions, and that I think is the most uh, important thing that we need to have as people is having, being able to, being open and able to have the dialogue to learn more and to to question, question more the whys behind it. Why, like you said, it's not that you're doing it. If you want to, interracial dating, fine, do that. But why are you, what is the reason behind you doing that? 
Or right. a friend of mine said he talked to a guy and he was saying, I don't, he's a black man saying he specifically does not date black women. Like those are the questions. That's why, <laughs> why? Right, exactly. Yeah. It's like, what, it's like, why, why, what made you, first of all, what, what set of circumstances did you come up under that made you have that sort of, of, of what, what do you want to say? Um, that ideology, just period. That, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The ideology, right. That's right. That sort of feeling towards, you know, a set of women who look just like you and go through the same thing that you go through, exactly. you know, and, and I've been fascinated by that, by the fact that, because I grew up, my father, I grew up in a very pro-black household. Mm -hmm. You know, I grew up with a father who was preaching to me the values of, you know, black women, black men, black family since I was five years old. You know, there were there were certain movies that my father had me watching when I was like five, ten years old that probably other black kids weren't watching at that time. You know, and, and not just movies, but things that he was teaching me, books that he made me read. So I grew up, I grew up with the mindset, you know, that you know I was always going to be with a black woman, and I was always going to, you know, uphold with the black community as the best that I could. Not mm -hmm. saying, you know, not I'm not perfect, you know, mm -hmm. but in the best way that I could, yeah. you know, but. There are other people who didn't grow up with those same experiences. That does not mean that they are quote unquote bad black people or coons or anything like that. It just means they grew up under a different set of circumstances. And I want to attempt to understand that set of circumstances so that we can find common ground because we can't get anywhere if we don't get to, if we don't get there together. Exactly. No one person is going to get there by themselves. You know, so that conversation in episode four was really born of number one. I wanted to show I wanted to show respect and admiration for black women because I feel like it throughout my entire life. Anywhere that I got was because of black women. It was because some black woman took me into her wing and educated me, or some black woman believed in me and pushed me, or some black woman loved me and nurtured me. And where I am today is because of black women. You know, I give a lot of respect and a lot of love for my father because he is the he is the quintessential black man that I grew up with. You know, he's my first hero. But black women have always been there for me. My mother, my sister, you know, women that I've dated, mentors that I've had have all been black women. So I, the first thing I wanted to do was show respect for black women. And the second thing I wanted to do was explore, you know, why there seems to be a disconnect um, between, or, or I would say a certain disconnect, not an all disconnect, not an all encompassing, but a certain disconnect between black men and black women and see how I can, you know, bridge the gap in that particular episode and in the series itself. So, yeah, I think you did a very, uh, a very good job of expressing that, those opinions and, and those ideas and expressing the motive behind it it's not that i'm saying i'm better or you're worse or whatever it's not it's not even that is i uh, i want a better understanding like you said so we can come to a place of common ground and first thing i do want to mention because i have this in my notes i think anthony was the standout to me in the series just he didn't have that many lines. Anthony, <laughs> yeah. Anthony, I'm gonna tell Howard that don't. I'm gonna. He's gonna. You're gonna blow up his head more than it already is. He's a. He's a super cocky, arrogant, and I'm just playing. He's one of my best friends. No, yeah, that, no, no, no. Um, <laughs> I, lo I love him, man. Yo, he I love him. he was like the little like like I said, he didn't have that many scenes, but there's little like little um little, little quips. yeah little little facial quips, <laughs> little facial uh, micro expressions that you like <laughs> that just had me dying, and that I just felt added um nice levity to some of the heavier situations. But I think everybody did a, a excellent job. Uh, Shani as well. I think she did a great job of portraying that role and. One thing I did want to mention about about Shani's role is that that role can be played so many ways, and it can give off the impression of the angry black women or uh, the the all the stereotypes that they associate with black women. 
that's not what I got. I felt like she was a a real um, encompassing black woman, not the generalized stereotypes that we normally see in media. Thank you. And this the same thing with uh, I I, I'm, I forgot the character's name, but the actor actress that played your wife. I think she did a great job as, as well as that. Of oh yeah, Tijuana as, as Anaya. Yes, Tijuana uh, Agnew. That's her, her real name. Is she plays Anaya Bassett on the series? Yeah, she. I think she did a great job as well of that feeling of warmth that you get from black women, or at least that I feel from black women. Um, I felt like she encompassed that so so perfectly, especially um. Uh, towards those those the final episodes, I think it's like six or uh, four, five, and six. I think uh-huh. towards that end, I think actually the last episode, I just it just I just felt that warmth from her, and it felt, and that's where I was talking about about again about the chemistry, the chemistry between you and her, especially towards I think like I said, I think it's five and six maybe, but I definitely six. That chemistry felt real. It felt like you guys were a family. It felt like uh, that love uh, um, was there, and. I think that's what adds to great shows. That's why we, the Cosby's, that's why we love Claire Huxtable. Like, Claire Huxtable was real. I, I I thought her and Bill were married. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, that chemistry. Right, exactly. exactly. And, and even when right. I found out that they weren't, in my head, they still married. Like, <laughs> like so. Right, exactly. Exactly. They'll always be Cliff and Claire. Yeah, exactly. exactly. So exactly. that I, I feel like that, the chemistry was building and, and getting to that point at the end of this series. So I just wanted to... Uh, apology for that because that's not that's not easy to attain um but that comes through um good acting as well as very good writing thank you thank you yeah that's that was heaven sent both of them are heaven sent honestly my sister shani you know she's been she's been with me all my life supporting me and been in my corner and I, um i'll give you a little tidbit so and this is just how kind of things change in production so originally when i was acting the series uh, the character of asha was only supposed to be in two episodes um she was supposed to be a reoccurring um, guess she wasn't supposed to be part of the main cast, uh-huh. and that's because when I wrote the part, I wrote the part for my sister. I didn't know if she was gonna want the part. I didn't know if she was gonna be busy enough. So, like I said, she was she was actually doing her acting thing. She was, you know, in theater and she was, in, you know, different things. She was doing all that things. So I was like, well, she doesn't want to do it. I was like, she'll throw me a bone in the two episodes. <laughs> you, you, so, you didn't know if she so could when care, I came to her, commit to the time. Yeah, the time I didn't know. I honestly didn't know. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't know if she'd laugh in my face or what, because I hadn't done any actual serious, serious writing in, a, in, a, in years. So when I came to her with the script and the outline, I was like, hey, look, I got this character for you. Can you help me out? She looked at it and she said, yeah, um, why, why are we in two episodes? <laughs> and I was like, well, I thought, you know, she said, oh, no, no, no. She said, no. She said, she said I, I'm doing this. So I said, okay, got you. So then she became, you know, actually part of the main cast. And I said, I said, I was actually relieved because I wanted more than one. I wanted more than one woman in the show, mm-hmm. even though the show is, you know, it's the the four main male protagonists. Mm-hmm. I didn't want it to be, you know, just a black man show. You know, I did want to show, you know, black women and have stories for black women and have situations that were geared towards, you know, black women and different interactions. So that was really great, you know, her, you know, coming to my rescue and, and, and being the great sister and saying, you know, I, I really want to be a part of this. So that was really good. And then with Tijuana, she was actually the last character that was actually cast. Everybody else I knew. When I wrote Tijuana, I mean, when I wrote the, the, the character of Anaya, I knew I needed someone, like you said, that was very warm, but also had a sense of self-determination about them. Yeah. So that she could function as a character without being tethered to a Johnny. That, I wanted her to, you know, have her own, you know, her own destiny. Especially, I, again, I keep on going back to this scene because I just feel it was so uh, powerful. But it's that scene when she's as the 
episode six is uh, when she's reading the lines to herself. She. Oh yeah, that's uh, that episode four. Oh, episode four, when she's reading the lines to herself, and it's it's a solo scene. But the great thing about that scene was one, you felt the strength of her and the confidence of her, but again, it didn't feel cockiness, and and the power that you know that that I anyway that I feel from black women. You felt that from her, but still the loving nature and quality of her and the warmth that I was talking about as well. But again, she's in a scene that you said this this the series is uh, with four male roles or are, are the lead lead four four leads in essence, uh, male leads. But she's in a scene all by herself, and she doesn't. You don't feel like she needs them. You don't feel like she right, need, absolutely. You, you don't feel like she needs a man in in that scene at all. Like it passes the uh, the Bechtel test, and like I just felt like I said in that scene, it's a small scene, but it says so much about the series to me. Thank you. Yeah, when I wrote that, when I wrote that monologue, that was one of the things that was in my head to write from the beginning. So I knew episode four was written in my head before it was even written on paper. Mm. Um, so I knew with that episode, that episode is titled Goddess. I knew what I wanted to do going in and writing it. I wrote that episode super quick because I go, I went in with the plan. Like, this is what I'm going to do. This is the plan. This is what I want to talk about. This is how I want it to begin, middle and end, everything. So just the way Tijuana brought it to life was incredible. It was incredible. And, you know, like I said, we met her really at the last minute. I was looking to cast and I, I was trying to find different actresses and I couldn't find anybody. And then Jeffrey introduced me to her. And he was actually, Jeffrey, that was actually um, his idea to bring Tijuana on to play a nine. And so we met and we talked and we had a great conversation and she was very excited. And I said, Hey, do you want to do this role? And she said, absolutely. She was down from the moment, you know, that she met me, honestly. So it was really good. And when we were doing our rehearsals, our, our table reads and things of that nature, you know, it automatically, you felt it, you know, you know, you just feel it with somebody, yeah. you know, it felt real, which was, which was phenomenal. Cause I was like, Oh God, please let us, you know, have some type of kinship because, you know, we're not together in real life or anything like that. But, you know, it felt real. And so, you know, just, yeah, thank you, Tijuana. You know, when you listen to this, thank you very much. You know, I'm very appreciative. You really bought, you know, the series to life in a whole new interesting dynamic with, you know, your interpretation of the character. Yeah. Like I said, I mean, I, I think the the series is a very, very good series. Uh, like I said, it addresses so many different topics and, and issues and philosophies that the Black community goes through but like you said we're not a monolith so it expresses the the vast variety of perspectives that we all have regarding it and it it allows you to to think and to push and have those discussions and those dialogues amongst your friends and and the people that you actually interact with so i think that helps propel society moving forward and for those out there you need to go see blue collar hustle the series on youtube Season two is going to be coming out in this fall. What would you say uh, people should look be, be looking forward moving into season two? Uh, with season two, we're really gonna uh, we're gonna move into I want to say a more serious form of storytelling. I'm gonna say it's based on really when I sat down and thought about season two, I thought about what I really wanted to talk about and what I wanted to explore. And what I really want to explore is I want to explore the effects of post traumatic slave uh, slave syndrome um, in modern day millennials. Post-traumatic slave syndrome is defined by uh, Dr. Uh, Joy DeGras. Mm. It's described as a set of behaviors or associations, you know, or actions um, associated with, you know, multi-generational trauma experienced by African-Americans as a result of slavery. 
And the way I interpret that is we look at, um, if we take hip-hop, for example, or music in general, mm -hmm. and we look at the great empires of hip-hop or music, none of them stay together. You know, be it, you know, Motown, Jackson 5, Bad Boy Records, Fellow Records, you know, any, all of those, you know, those great, you know, black empires that were started by, you know, black people when they were black companies, they never stay together. They always break up. So when you look at, you know, when you look at Ajani and Jose and Quan and Anthony and see how close and tight-knit they are as black men and as a company and trying to push Quan's music career, what could break them up or what could threaten to break them up? Mm. You know, I wanted to explore that. I wanted to explore really what it means to be black in modern-day society and how hard it is to have a goal and really, really see the goal through. It's very, very hard because there are so many external forces Yep. That are trying to that are trying to tear you down and break you down. Divide, how do you divide and conquer? That? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Divide and conquer. So how do you how do you stay together? Yeah, you know it's very 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 hard to do that. So especially that's one of the things that I want to explore, especially like you said, with those external forces pushing you. Uh, you know, it, and it can be in a variety of ways of you know financially. You know, I'll pay you more exactly. if you go if you come with me instead of stay with them or stardom. Uh, you know, you can arise to this level of famedom or popularity if you go this route instead of the slower route with your group. You know, there's a myriad of, uh, of pressures that you're talking about that you can explore, and that gives you uh, a vast, vast amount of content to be able to to uh, create through that. Well, actually, I want to go back to season one a little bit, and I want to talk about uh, sure. just the capturing of the location. Especially in a, a certain scenes, I was like, "Damn, I feel like I'm right back in Atlanta." Like, I was like, "I was like, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you feel that feel of, uh, of of being in the South and Atlanta." What do you think about that adds to the character of the series? How is that gonna change or stay the same moving forward in season two? Yeah, that's a, that's actually a great question. So when I conceptualized the series, I wanted Atlanta slash Stone Mountain to really be the seventh character. Mm -hmm. Atlanta is the seventh main character of the series. And I know that kind of sounds cliche, but it's true. Because so many of the experiences that I've had, both positive and negative, that make up the show and make up who I am as a person, happen here. You know, like I said, I was, I was raised in Atlanta until I was about 14. But when I got here in Atlanta is, is really when I had my coming of age and my coming of culture, you know, as a black man. And, you know, and, you know Stone Mountain, in, in the history of Stone Mountain, really, it's a really grotesque, mm. ugly history. You know, we, <laughs> very we no, honestly, you know, yeah, very we are ugly. living under a mountain that is basically a memorial to slavery, mm -hmm. racism, and the subjugation of black people. But today, Stone Mountain is 70% black. So I felt the beauty of that, honestly, is the fact that black people, we came to a place that was built to subjugate us, and we turned it into a place that celebrates us. No matter what that mountain says, when you come to Stone Mountain, you see black working class men, women, children, families. It's a beautiful thing. So I wanted to show that. So, you know, in the series, like in the intro, you see the high school books you read in high school. You know, you see you see different places. I, I specifically told Jeffrey, mm -hmm. I want to film these places. You know, I want to I want to show Stone Mountain. I want to show Atlanta. I want to show these places that they're going to, that they're eating at, that they're working at, that they're living at, dating, whatever. You know, I want to show these places because they're important. I feel like the audience is going to understand how important that they are. And it also makes it easier for us as actors to convey that sense, you know, of home because this is where we are, you know? So that was really, really important. And then going into season two, we're actually going to do, uh, we're actually going to do more of that in season two. We're actually going to have more locations. Okay. Um, we're going to have more staples of Atlanta. Um, you'll see different, you'll see different places 
um, that you may, you know, may not know are historical landmarks in Atlanta and that are important, you know, to black history in Atlanta. So that's what I'll say as far as these two. We're actually going to expand more on the on the world building of Atlanta and Stone Mountain. First of all, if you're listening to this, spoilers, 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 you should have watched the series. So go pause now. <laughs> pause right now. Go finish watching the series. It's on YouTube. And then come back and finish. Um, so for those, uh, again, who have seen it, you already know that the season one finale ends with Sosa or, uh, Jose about to, uh, press send and put the music out to the world. Upload the album, right. Now I, I want to transition that into real world. How did, what was the feeling for you? Because the series has gotten a, a lot of accolades. A lot of people are, are watching, listening and loving it. What was that feeling for you? Now that it is now, out, now far, that now that something you did yeah. create is in the world and it's out there for people to consume, uh, it feels great. Honestly, it feels incredible. This is just something that we put our our, our blood, sweat, and tears into, and a lot of time and effort, um, finances we that we put into is really just being embraced. And like I said, really the show, honestly, I, I really wanted to be humble about it. And I said, look, if black people like this, if only a few black people like this, then I will have done something. You know, that will be my contribution you know, to the black community. It was really, like I said, the show was really a love letter to the black community and black millennials, you know, in general. So it's for them. And the fact that it was embraced by the black community so far, uh, to me, means everything. And as far as like the accolades, you know, we don't write, I don't write episodes thinking about the awards that I'm going to win. We don't go into rehearsals thinking about, oh yeah, this episode is going to be the one, you know, or anything like that. So we don't, we don't go into the accolades, but the accolades do help. I'll say that. Like, you know, just because of the fact that, you know, it's, it's recognition. Mm -hmm. It's recognition for all the hard work you put in, and it helps put you out there on a further, on a bigger platform. So, you know, just the, like I said, all the accolades and the awards we've gotten, it's been a beautiful thing, and we really love the recognition, and we're, we're very, very thankful, all of us are. But like I said, my, my humble, humble, humble approach to this is I just want to make something that black people can be proud of. When you watch the show, I want you to look at it and say, I'm proud to watch the show, and I'm proud to support it because you see six black people living their lives and trying to be better people. You know, I didn't want to create a show that was devoid of conflict because then it's not, it's not interesting. But the conflict that I do put in there, I wanted it to be for a specific reason. And I always wanted to make it a moment that somebody could say, I've been through that and I overcame it. Or I've been through that and I made that choice. Or I've been through that and I've seen, you know, that happen. I always want to put it in a perspective where you can't overcome. And I felt definitely that that was accomplished in the in the series from my perspective. It felt it's, it, it felt very real, very realistic. There, you know, there's it's not going to always be roses and uh, you know lottery winners. <laughs> there's going to be some trial, right. <laughs> trials and tribulations. You know, there's going to be some downsides. Right. SQ got that baby mama drama. <laughs> right, uh, <laughs> right, right, uh, right. So you know, he, 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 he we'll talk about that in season two. Oh, we'll, we'll talk about that. Uh, yeah, I'll, yeah, we'll talk about that. I wonder if we're gonna actually get to get to meet baby mama. Um, hit, hit, keep watching. <laughs> See, <laughs> Javanese. But um, uh, there was a that just made me think of. But the other thing I did think about, I also thought the direction of of the series was great. Um, we talked about that scene with uh, your your TV wife. Um, I thought that was amazing. Um, as well as um, they did it a couple of times, but the scenes where it's setting it up, making you think that it's going to be something else, and you know it's going to be something different. The scene of uh. Q uh, playing hide and seek with his daughter. I thought that was, I thought that scene was just, uh, it, was, it was magic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, people, you know, people love that scene. So uh, just a funny thing, um, 
when I when we were shooting that scene, and when I wrote that, actually one of the one of my favorite scenes that that I that I've written. Period. Just because you know, from a like again, like you said, from from that standpoint, you know, it was great, and Jeffrey really made it come alive. But the one funny thing is when we were shooting that scene, um, you know, at the very beginning, you know, you know, Quan he's, he's sweating, you know, <laughs> from sweating profusely, you know. And really, that was water that we were spraying. And uh, you know, uh, Sosa, who plays Jose, was in the background in between takes. He was he was spraying. Him. He was, put some more water on him. Put some more water on him. Put some more water. So he was like spraying him. So it's like it's like it's like pouring off of his face. Yeah. So that that's a really really good scene. Yeah. Yeah. I really I, I enjoy that scene as well too. Yeah. That was actually one of our. That was a fun fun shoot. Very fun. Yeah. yeah. That yeah that scene. For again, those who haven't seen it, go watch the series. But it has right. uh it has. And some... that's his real daughter. That's Quentin's real daughter. Oh wow. Okay, um, yeah, and that and that that scene made me think of a uh, trapped in the closet. I was like, "What? what what's about to go on?" Here? <laughs> like, oh, right, <laughs> right, exactly. I was like, "Oh." And then uh, the other thing when you started talking about that, um, Jose was spraying him with a spray bottle. It made me think of the Key and Peele skit uh, where he's sweating profusely, and <laughs> they just keep on asking him questions, right. and just sweating more. So, um, but yeah, I think it was. <laughs> I think it was very well directed um, and, again, very well written. Um, I'm very excited to see what's, what's going to happen in season two, uh, especially now that I that it's I, – I, I might get to find out uh, Q's baby mama because uh, I'm – based, based on those conversations, I, I'm ex- I, I'm interested to see what this is going to be like. <laughs> um, yeah, you so – yeah, so my so – with the, with the baby mother, there is – yeah, yeah, it's going to be interesting. <laughs> it's not going to be – so, again, it's not going to be what you think. Exactly, and is, is is what I'm gonna say. And and that's to me that and that's one of the other great aspects of the series is for me, um, TV can get very predictable, especially shows nowadays. It's very easy to predict what's gonna happen, why it's gonna happen, things of that nature. And the ones that really, really uh, stick with me are the ones that keep me guessing, the ones that uh, have that element of surprise or that element of unexpected. And I and I got that with this series, especially like you said, this was a series that. We're trying to carve out a niche that isn't as uh, I, isn't as occupied as it should be. Absolutely, yep. And thank you, thank you very much for for, for watching the show and supporting us. Because, like I said, man, we we everybody who supports us, man, we we hold in very high regard. What I'll say is because. Uh, to wrap this up, I want to say, first of all, I want to say thank you again for doing the interview and just taking the time and being the creator that you are in writing the series. I also want to thank you for taking the because with everything it takes sacrifice so in order to write that i know you had to sacrifice time money uh friendships relationships any anytime you create something like that you have to and so from a consumer from uh somebody that watched it i appreciate the time that you dedicated for because again i know it's not easy as well as to the actors as well that's doing it and definitely interested and excited to see what's going to happen in season two we do. You, I, I do want to also preface or say that uh, for season two, everybody who's listening, please come back and listen to another Say Woke podcast because we're going to have some more uh, interviews with some of the cast prior to season two. So uh, definitely check that out. Said again, uh, you can catch the series on YouTube, uh, Blue Collar Hustle. Um, we're also on Sika uh, TV. It's it's free to watch the show on Sika TV. Um, we're also on Quelly TV as well. Quelly TV is a black-owned uh, Netflix-style. Uh, curating channel um, that you can go on and you can watch the series as well. So shout out to Quelly TV. CEO and uh, founder of Quelly TV is actually doing really, really big things right now. So shout out to her. Cool. Um, and then if you want to uh, hit us up on social media, um, on Instagram, it's BCH underscore web series. And that's the same on Twitter. And then on uh, Facebook, we're Blue Collar Hustle. 
So again, if you want to hit us up, if you have any questions or any inquiries, um, feel free. So thank you. Thank you, everybody. And no, no problem. And all of that information. So those links will be in the description below. So if you don't have a pen, you don't have your phone to write it down. Well, you're listening to this, so you should be on something. But <laughs> um, you can just <laughs> just click on that link, and it will take you directly to uh, the social media pages as well as to the YouTube um, uh, account, so you can uh, watch the series there as well. And then definitely follow us on social media, thesonicbreakdown.com or Stay Woke Podcast with D. Ray, and we'll have updates about when uh, season two will be dropping as well as the interviews that we'll be having with the cast of Blue Collar Hustle. So again, I want to say thank you uh, and keep doing the great work that you're doing. You know our motto, live, listen to some great music, and for this podcast, watch some great web series, and love more. <laughs> and we out. Love more, absolutely. Oh.